You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. Well, what if I told you you had to do a presentation to your colleagues tomorrow, that you needed to speak on a topic using slides and deliver it? How would that feel? Um, what would go through your mind? Probably your anxiety levels would go up. You know, they'd rise a little bit. Today, we're talking about presentation skills. The reality is that we all have presentation skills. Some are better than others, you know, and a small percentage of us have much better than the masses. And presentation skills are really important. They're crucial to life, to everyone, whether you're at school, a university, you're looking for a job or you're in a job um, or you're looking to grow your business and looking for investment or you're in academia or you consider yourself a guru of sorts or you're a trainer you name it presentation skills are important for success they're important for career growth and so today we bring you a master class where we'll be shaking up your presentation skills we're going to be taking you through a guide on how to be kick-ass and <laughs> giving presentations, whether in person or online. Um, uh, we've got the head boredom slayer joining us for this conversation. Um, and that is Richard Malholland. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. I think we all need to be a wee bit better in this regard. So I'm happy to share. Yeah, well, you and your team are the go-to people. Um, I was just looking at all the things that you've done. Uh, you're the founder of Missing Link, uh, presentation powerhouse. Um, you're the official trainer of TED Fellows. You've delivered five TEDx talks and one TED talk. And also you are an author. You've spoken in various countries. What, 30 countries was the last count? Over six continents. So you've got tons of experience in this. Yes, uh, and you know, you pick up a few things on the go, and I'd originally thought that presenting online would be a bit of a bug, but it turns out it's a feature, and I think we need to change our frame mm. on what is available to us as presenters now, because it's actually so much better. Mm. But Richard, you run, I was just trying to frame the importance of this as a skill. You run a business that is centered on presentations. That just speaks to how important to life they are. Right. I mean, I was speaking to my son. My, my son turns 18 this week. And, and when he was younger, he wanted to be a speaker like his dad. I was very proud. And then he said to me, I want to be an, I was asking, you know, why he'd stop doing speeches. And he said, but dad, now I want to be an astrophysicist. Mm. And what I said to him is that an astrophysicist that can speak will always have an unfair advantage over an astrophysicist that can't. In any field that you go into, your ability to communicate what is inside your head is what is going to set you apart from your peers. This is not a skill for speakers. This is a skill for all types of leaders uh, and, and, you know, and thought leaders. And it's something that I, I get frustrated that we don't put enough attention into being really good at. Yes. I mean, just today, in fact, there's, um, I think it was in the Washington Post, Elon Musk was saying to CEOs, and I don't know how you feel about this. And I quote, he said, spend less time on finance, spend less time in conference rooms, less time on PowerPoint and more time just trying to make the product as amazing as, as possible. So a lot of leaders, especially if we look at the corporate world, are stuck literally in presentations and in the online world now is based on the, the, the new order. Um, do you think it's excessive or do you think it is necessary as a tool to lead and manage? I think it's both. I think that we often present when we shouldn't be. 
And I think that because of that, then when we should be presenting, we apply the same thinking to the should not presentations as we do to the should presentations. Now, Elon Musk is absolutely right. And yet when he stood up to to uh, launch his power wall, he did a presentation. He sold people on the problems, why we need this, what the problem is and goes through it. He, when he's on Clubhouse last week presenting, he was delivering a presentation of his thoughts and ideas. It just wasn't done in a traditional sense. So people have the mindset that uh, presentation is something that happens using a slide deck. But a presentation is you delivering a message to achieve a result. Sometimes we use visuals to make sure that happens better. But the idea is when should we be presenting, uh, so know when to use this, this skill and how to do it properly when you do. Mm-hmm. So I think he's right, but I, I think that he absolutely buys into the value of presenting. He just doesn't think we should be doing it uh, obsessively or, or excessively, and I agree, yeah. Mm. So let's get into the how. As you said, how you do it is key, and then we'll look at other areas that you've written on um, in recent time. But let's just look at the how, how we can get this right. Content surely is king in this game, Right. Absolutely. You write a good talk before you design one, before you deliver one. This is the bit that everybody skips through. Mm. Uh, what they do is they, they kick off and they jump in and the, the first thing they do is they open up their slide software and they just start dumping in information. They'll take a document that they had information on and they'll present it there. But actually, the, you've skipped uh, far too many steps. The mm. job number one that you have to do when you're presenting isn't to present your solution, but is to sell the problem. And what we need to think about is we need to understand that our audience typically doesn't have the same worldview as we do. They don't see the world through our same lens. And before we start thinking about what we want to tell them about our solutions, we need to get into the business of selling them a problem. Hmm. I always say to people that before you sell your audience anything, even an idea, you know, you, you want to sell them the, the problem that existed first. You don't sell the ambulance, you sell the, you sell the accident. Once you've sold the accident, the ambulance sells itself. So your first point of departure is working out what you want your audience to do when you're finished. Then you've got to work back and think, well, what do they need to know to make that happen? Then you've got to think about, well, what do, what do they need to, you know, why should they care about this? And finally, you've got to think about your credibility. And you've got to go through those steps. Uh, now, okay, so I'll come back to uh, uh, what follows that in a moment, but let's discuss this question of credibility. What do you mean by that, and how do we establish credibility? First of all, I'm so happy you asked me this one, because it's one of the ones where we really trip over ourselves. We get invited to do a talk on something. Now, there's two There's two ways. Let's say we're a speaker at a conference versus maybe a person presenting in corporate. Let's start with the corporate environment because that's where most people present. When the mistake that a lot of us make is to think that we have to stand up there and deliver all of our credentials, but we don't. When you have to have a, you know, a, you're doing a presentation on a specific solution, you introduce the problem up front because that's what buys their attention. And then all I have to do For example, if I was talking to you about, uh, you know, the problem of bad presentation, I introduced this is a real problem and we're missing a big opportunity to really capitalize online because it's a great time for it. Then I might want to talk about my credentials. I say, you know, I know this because of having spoken over 30 countries and on six continents and, you know, blah, 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 and give you one or two lines. Now, I don't need to give you all my credentials. I only have to let you realize that I am a credible source for ideas around the problem that I've just introduced you to. Mm. 
So it's not a whole shopping list of my credentials. It's only the most important ones that are relevant to the current issue. And you should always turn around and limit yourself to between three to five core facts because they don't want to listen to you talk about yourself. It's not about <laughs> you. You're not, you're not the hero here. The hero, the champion, we say, is in the chair. The sage is on the stage. You're simply there as a helper for them. So you've got to think, what are the three things that I can tell my audience that give me the credibility that they want to know to listen to me beyond this about the problem? And that's the first departure point. If I'm presenting on stage, I don't want to get onto a stage. People often say to me, oh, well, you're going to jump onto stage and you're going to give them your credentials. Uh, could you imagine as a speaker, me jumping on, you know, I, uh, I was this and I got this accolade. And that's where the importance of a good bio matters. Mm -hmm. Having an MC read out that bio before you get on stage. I always pretend that I'm blushing off to the side. Like, oh, where did you find this? I'm so embarrassed. Come on, guys. Oh, Richard, I'm like, MC. I've actually emceed a number of events, a variety. I've even called you up on stage one many, many years ago. Um, it was a radio and advertising conference many years ago. So is that the I truth that people blush, people pretend blush? Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, because well, I so I remember, for example, that event, I think, was in the forum. And, yes, um, yes. You know, I'm standing off to the side in the auditorium. That, that was a hilarious event because the, the, the visuals didn't work. And I thought it was the radio people having revenge <laughs> on the vis, visual people. But, um, the, you know, so what happens is you're sitting reading out this, this stuff, you know, ex rock and roll roadie mm -hmm. was voted top 40 under 40 and mail and guardian top people to take to lunch. And everybody looks at me and I'm not going to stand there looking like, yeah, look at me. <laughs> so I kind of smile bashfully and pretend like, oh, I don't know how they find these things. And that's, that's the role playing. But the truth is, you do me a massive service. Mm. The ability of an, an MC to effectively build up a speaker means that they buy all that credibility for me by the time I get on stage. So then I walk out onto the stage and the audience is already invested. They're already like, okay, okay, I'll give you the first five minutes. I'll, you've bought me the five minutes I need to do the next, the next part of the presentation. Now, even in corporate environments, we can do this. You could have somebody who introduces the presentation. Hey, everybody, this is what we hope to cover today. We believe that there's a problem in the world of this, that, and the next thing, and we, and such and such and such, and this is a really big issue. Now, I don't want to take all of your time talking about that because we've got an expert in the room today who works as part of our R&D team, mm. uh, has worked on this field and this space and this space, and can really, really do that for you. And I'd now like to welcome up to the floor, you know, this is so-and-so, so-and-so, and, and then that happens. So... We can be very, very mindful about just getting that right amount of credibility because credibility is the currency of attention at the beginning of your presentation. Right. Um, I've got to take a break, but I just want to quickly ask you about the two archetypes that you mentioned in this relationship, in this exchange that's going on. You said the champion is in the chair and the sage is on stage. What do these archetypes, archetypes involve? So one of the books I wrote is called Story Seller. It's a little free ebook anyone's welcome to look at. And we talk about the idea that the mistake that we make when we present is we think it's about our story that matters. And my feeling is that you're never trying to tell your story. You're trying to sell your audience a new story of their life in which you can exist or your ideas can exist to help them get there. So you're Gandalf, right? You're Dumbledore. You're not... Uh, the hero, it's not your story that matters. You're simply offering information and you've got to get your head around this. And then you've got to paint a picture to your audience, the hero of how their life could look 
if they go with your thinking, and more importantly, what it will look like if they don't. Right? Voldemort wins, the baddies win, and this happens. And that's your job. Your job is to to sell them a new version of their own story. They are the hero. And your departure point of every presentation you ever write, the first thing you have to write is, this is my champion. This is the person and this is what their problems will be and this is how I can help them and start from there. If you walk in thinking, I'm the hero, I'm here to sell you something, I'm the champion and I wanna talk all about me, then you're gonna have an audience that's gonna turn off. Because people don't want to listen to your story. They want to make a better version of their own. Hmm. Every one of us, we are the lead actor in our own story. Let's take a break right there and uh, continue our, our conversation with my guest this afternoon, the founder of The Missing Link, Richard Malholland. 702 Masterclass. So we continue our masterclass and we're speaking to the founder of Missing Link Presentation Powerhouse. He is a renowned speaker and today we are completely focused on making or just shaking up your presentation skills and abilities, your approach to what you do when you stand up in front of an audience in any kind of setting, whether you're a student at school, uh, whether you are at university, it really doesn't matter. Uh, uh, these skills still apply. You can take them anywhere. And Richard Mulholland is my guest. So, Richard, let's talk about practicing your presentation. Uh, I don't know what you believe in. Is it bullet points or do you write out the whole thing? I remember um, something I was looking at the history of the White House and President Ronald Reagan apparently would drill for hours practicing his answers to anticipated questions um, that could be delivered by or that could be asked to him by journalists. But he would do this with surrogates who stood in for um, the journalists. They would ask these really tough and hostile questions and he would do that preparing his speech and he would do these these drills. Where do you stand? What do you think of the idea of practice? Richard? I mean, one of the most famous, yeah. Yeah. I think practice is, yes. We've got you, yes. We I just think practice is critical. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous examples there was actually when Ronald Reagan was trying to defeat Walter Mondale. He'd actually lost the first two debates, and that's why they went into the room. And I think his coach at the time was a guy called Roger Ailes. And they had sat there and done all of these drilling of the questions. And that famous answer was because Walter Mondale was so much younger than Reagan, and Reagan was this old guy in power, and this was the problem. And that question came up of, of Reagan's age, and his answer was so beautiful. That, you know, are you too old to do this? And he said, I'm going to stop you right there. I will not use my opponent's youth and inexperience <laughs> against them. And you can hear the whole audience laughing, and it actually humanized him, and he became that father of the nation again, and he ended up beating Walter Mondale and winning that debate and doing it. Now, that sounded off the cuff, but it was not. It was something that had really, really happened in rehearsal. Hmm. Now, Reagan, being a professional actor, was it because, you know, of course, that was his background, yeah. was able to rehearse to the point of still sounding natural. The one problem that people do is they over-rehearse. We're not all professional actors. So they rehearse to a point where they're actually reciting like a high school speech. I want today to talk to you about whales. There are many kinds of whales. And then if they make one mistake in one word, they lose their track completely. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry, sorry, I meant to say this. 
You want to get to the point. What I think people, my little hack that I want to suggest that you do is you don't have to rehearse your content perfectly. You need to just rehearse your bridges, your segues from content points perfectly. So that gives you freedom in a framework to move around. So when I present, I know what my slides and my content are going to be. I know what my basic narrative structure is, and I kind of know the stories I want to tell. What I want to do to look like a pro is work out how I'm going to get from story A, which may be around the, the BlackBerry and why I think there was a, you know, why it went out of business, to story B, which is how I, why I have the security gate put into the second floor of my house. And I've got to think about how I perfectly transition those two points. Mm -hmm. And if I can get that dialed in, then I'm comfortable that I just have to know where I've got to get to next and I'll find my way. So your rehearsal's job is to leave you with breadcrumbs. Now, obviously, if you're delivering a you know five-minute TED talk or a you know even an 18-minute TED talk, you're so constrained for time. Then I would you know when I present a TEDx talk or a TED talk, I have that really really dialed in. But more often than not, that is not your context. Your context is standing up in front of a, a group of professionals and uh, being able to roll with the punches if somebody interrupts you. And if you're too rehearsed, then it's going to throw you. Mm -hmm. So. Absolutely know your material, know where you want to get your audience to and know how the main steps you have to take, but then allow yourself some room to breathe and play. So do you sit down, if we could just stay with a very controlled, tight setting for a minute, um, do you sit down and say, I'm going to spend two minutes per slide. So if I've got five slides, that gives me 10 minutes. And then the two odd minutes, say you've got a 12 minute TED talk because the time has come down even more. Um, or some plat some of them, some iterations of uh, the platform have even less time. So do you do yes. that? Do you mathematically work it out that way? So it's a very good, for me, a very good starting point for my style of presenting. So I don't have many, many, you know, I don't have a lot of text on my slides. It's mm. usually one big image with an idea that my audience is, it's kind of in introducing a concept that I'm busy talking about that they're trying to figure out. And when those all land together, my rule is approximately one slide per minute. So if I'm doing in the past a 45 minute keynote, now I prefer to do 30 minute keynotes online because of people's attention. Yeah. Uh, I know that I'm in the range of 30 to 35 slides. And that's also helpful for me because I also want to know where I need to be at the middle. So you need to, I always, always present with a, a timer. And that's one of the great things when you're presenting online. You can set up everything the, so you can see all your points. So I have a timer and I know exactly which slide I have to be at the halfway point. And I've just got, if I'm running a little bit, uh, you know, I've gone a bit quickly and I've been presenting and going quite, you know, fast. Then I realize, okay, I want to, I want to dial it back a little bit, slow down. I, I could even give my audience a little bit of a break mid presentation, which is something we recommend. And then, uh, you know, pick them up again and take them through to the end. Mm -hmm. So you need to know what your core markers are. But what happens is most people, they get to the point where they realize, oh, goodness, I've got five minutes left in my presentation and I'm only on slide 25 or 50. And then they rush through the rest. The problem with this is most of the good stuff happens at the end of a prezzo. So our peroration, that's the bit where I start building up my voice and getting you to the end. And, you know, guys, if we can do this and blah, 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 and really build my audience up and I earn my applause at the end of that presentation. If I have to rush that, yeah. I lose all the impact at the end. And the reason I don't have to rush that is because I know my key time markers along the way. Right. But definitely start by giving yourself enough time.
Okay. A slide a minute for me is a good a good starting point. Okay. Um, I want to touch on something about Ronald Reagan. Uh, do you believe that people should take acting lessons or should take voice classes, for instance, just as a, a way of supporting their abilities to stand in front of an audience? I think, first of all, you should take writing lessons. Ah. Again, you write a good talk before you design one, before you deliver one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I've seen many speakers that, and in fact, I think I fell into this trap a lot early in my career. I thought I was so big on the craft of speaking that audiences would come up to me afterwards and they would say, you know, six months later, oh, I saw you at that talk at this thing. You were hilarious and everything. And then, like, I would wait to see if they had anything. And they, they can't remember what I spoke about. Mm. They, they just remember that I was funny and maybe I said a, a bad word or something. And I'm like, oh, goodness. I've got this all wrong. What I need to do is to work on my narrative structure better. And then I started working on actually crafting better stories and the way that I told my stories. And now people will come up to me and say, you know, when you talked about this principle of best versus favorite, I've never thought of it. You know, I've never thought of it the same way again. That's when I'm winning. So we need to start by understanding uh, the, the basic premise of human attention and how we can command more of it. My starting point to almost anyone the, the the textbook that I would suggest you read is Aristotle's Rhetoric. Okay. But if you want a, an easier entry point to it, I would read uh, Thank You for Arguing, which talks about argument as not fighting like online, but argument as the <laughs> uh, the way of you know the how knowledge was created way back in the day by by you know intellectuals learning through debating each other's points. And that teaches you the principles of rhetoric. And that to me is the fund logos, pathos, and ethos are the building blocks that we need to build off. And if you can start understanding logos, pathos, and ethos, uh, then then later on in your journey, then you start going for speech lessons and things. But if you're a great speaker, but you don't have a good narrative, you'll lose your audience. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I've seen speakers who they've got a little shadow voice and they're not that great. And the audience, but they've got you on the hook because what they're talking about is so interesting that you're willing to do the heavy lifting. You lean into those speakers. And that's where I would rather be. I'd rather be a lean-in speaker than a back-off speaker. Mm. My guest is Richard Malholland, and we're talking about presentation skills. And it's been so insightful. Those titles, again, Aristotle's Rhetoric. I know that you're likely texting me to ask for those book titles again. Aristotle's Rhetoric, and thank you for arguing. Let's now bring you the latest in EWN headlines. 702 Masterclass. And we're back with the masterclass. It's just been so gripping. Uh, speaking to the founder of Missing Link Presentation Powerhouse. Um, he has uh, trained TED Fellows. He's delivered five TEDx talks, um, one TED talk, and he's the author of Boredom Slayer. He's spoken across 30 countries over six continents. And he joins us this afternoon just to shake up our presentation skills. These are crucial. I think we get the idea of why they're so important. And now that we know that, what do we do? And he's been sharing great insights with us um, so far. Uh, you talk about polishing up on your storytelling. You know, storytelling has been so prominent over the past 10, 15 years or so as a key to being an effective communicator, as a key to being able to sell your brand or for people to develop some kind of emotional response or attachment to that brand. And We've talked it up so much that sometimes it feels intimidating. It feels daunting. It seems it. Absolutely. And sometimes we even overtell the story. We overvalue the story. You know, for me, 
if, if, I'd like to explain how I think we need to be thinking about storytelling with regards to presentations. I used to have this dog. His name was Murphy. He was this boxer, and he was super obedient. He would do absolutely anything I asked of him. However, he would not. I could not. I don't know if you've got a dog. Yes. I could not give that dog medicine. No matter how badly, how well-trained he was, if I tried to give him a pill, he would fight me on it. Now, luckily, we're a little bit smarter than our canine friends. So I figured out that if I could pop it, I figured out, the world knows, if I could pop that pill in a little bit of peanut butter and I would make my dog sit and I'd put him in a sit and I'd say, stay, and I'd put the peanut butter in front of him and I'd say, take it. He would jump in and he would like eat up the whole thing and he'd kind of give me that look like, I know what you did. I'm not happy. But <laughs> any which way, he swallowed that pill. Mm. Now, here's how I want you to think about story in presentations. The job of the pill is the job of the whole exercise for in this case was to make my dog better. If I just gave him the peanut butter, he'd love it. And it was a beautiful experience. And it's really, really fantastic. But uh, he didn't really get any benefit out of it. And if I just gave him the pill, it would be too bitter for him to swallow and he would spit it out and he would reject it. Now, that's exactly what we're trying to do in presentations. I have a point. In this case, I want to talk to you about how to think about storytelling and presentations. I am using peanut butter, the story about my dog, to wrap this thinking in. But the payload I want to give you is the pill, is the information that just makes sure that you know before you start writing the story what the job of the story is. What are we trying to do? What, what does this mean in your case of make the dog better? Why am I telling them this story? Because for the most part, entertain is not enough. Even I would argue motivate is not enough. Inspire is not enough. Motivation is not an output because it lasts as it has all the calories of a bar of chocolate. You know, five minutes after you leave the talk and somebody cuts you off in traffic, you've lost that motivation. So there needs to be something that remains after the sweet peanut butter of your story wears off. Mm. And that's how we need to think of stories when we construct them from the point of view of presentation. Well, first of all, what is the pill? Is it a vitamin or is it a painkiller? And even those two things will, will help you decide what kind of story you have to wrap around that. What is the action we want them to take as a result of us telling it? And then what is a fun story that I can enjoy telling because this should be enjoyable for you? that I'm passionate about or interesting enough or interested about that will be a good way of getting that across the line. Mm. And if that's where you start, then you're, you're, off to, you're off to the races. So, Richard, before we transition into the online world, right, um, as a seasoned speaker, you've watched other speakers at work as well. Who has taught you what? Who have you learned what from over the years? I have learned, in fact, so the first thing we teach on a story to stage program is the art of watching as a coach. I watch uh, presentations with a worksheet. So every speaker I watch teaches me something. There's always, I have one little line in my coaching sheet that says, what do I want to steal from them? And I've yet to see a presentation where I don't want to steal something. Mm. You should watch every single presentation as if, and like if you watch a TED Talk again tomorrow, uh, I want you to watch a TED Talk with the context and idea that they have paid you to give them feedback to make them better. So, so pretend that any TED speaker you watch has just paid you to give them feedback about their talk and make them better. And just that mindset will make you look at it differently and you can learn from every speaker. However, there's obviously people that I've, uh, I specifically enjoy. There's a gentleman by the name of Connor Neal, uh, who you can find on YouTube. Uh, who I've worked with and, and know well, and uh, he is just a, an amazing resource on 
presentation specifically and actually does a lot of detail around rhetoric and Aristotle's thinking that is very, very interesting. He has a newsletter you can sign up to. I think he's fantastic. He's a, a teacher in, in Barcelona's business school. Hmm. So he's an excellent resource to look for. I have various speakers. I always, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, the difference between best versus favorite. I think best is, is less important than favorites. And I have favorite speakers that I really enjoy. And I learn a lot from their, you know, how they really apply their craft. One is a, a gentleman by the name of David Rendall. He does a talk called The Freak Factor, which is one of my favorite talks. Now, what I've learned about David that I, that is very different to the way I approached it is he has one talk dialed in perfectly. I've seen him do the same talk three or four times and every single time I enjoy it more. And I don't understand. I feel like I should be bored of it, <laughs> but he just gets better and better and better every time I see him. Right, so that's probably one of my favorite straight up talks uh, would be his. Uh, my favorite speaker is a guy I disagree with so much on his speaking style and I hate it because I simultaneously hate his speaking style and he's still my favorite and that's Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, okay. I think you know he he makes me work far too hard. He he steadily does storytelling. He reads, you know, he has his entire thing printed out in his in in his hands in front of him. He could essentially read the whole thing. But his ability to tell a story is so great. Mm -hmm. He doesn't use any visuals, any slides, and I think he does this a bit to his detriment. And I want to get angry and frustrated with him. But on the same side, I've never been in a Martin Gladwell presentation that I didn't love. So that then, and that, so, yeah, that speaks to the, the need for slides because they can also be this crutch. Um, of course, the slide has to be effective. It has to not be word dense. We've come to that point uh, and we'll get to the online yes. world as far as slides are concerned. So they have to be effective and support the message. But this is this is interesting that he goes without. Does it speak to his ability to hold an audience's attention? Yeah, so that's the first thing is that people walk up to me often and they'll say, but look at Gladwell. He just did a three-hour masterclass. We spoke together at that Disrupt Summit. Yes. And, um, you know, he did a full-day masterclass and he didn't use a single slide. And my only thing is, that's amazing, but, um, you know, can you remember the date he told you about that thing? Or what was that big point when he suggested that big microscript, you know, that, that quote by General What's-His-Face when he did the thingamabob? Can you tell me what that was again? And most people can't. Because we have, we apply as humans a thing called dual channel processing. And most of us see through our visual channel and hear through our audible channel. And our brain is very good of joining the picture and the, you know, and the thousand words. And often they shouldn't be the same thing. So the, the words say one thing. The picture is the anchor of that thought. It's the image that we just have to hold in our brain mm. as the trigger for everything else. So as a speaker, my job is to give, to create slides that give my audience something to hook their memories to. And so when they then think of a picture from now on, so I show a picture of Murphy, my dog, and I show them the peanut butter and the pill, and they have all of this set up and they see that image. If they then later on are sitting there seeing something like that, they'll remember the whole story. Oh, the like recall. Now, okay. I don't, mm. The recall. So that is what you're doing, but also for what it's worth as a presenter, it, it is handy to have those little breadcrumbs, those little visual cues letting you know where you're going and, and where you're getting to when you want to, you know, when you want to advance. So I think slides can be very, very, very helpful for audience and for speaker alike, specifically for the purpose of recall. 
I think though that a lot of people abuse slides and what they do is they see the slide as the visual script. It's like, it's like having your cue cards for your high school speech on the overhead, you know, projector behind you. Mm. That, that doesn't make sense. That's not their job. You, they're not supposed to see your notes. They're supposed to see the images that help them recall that letter. So I believe that a, a presentation with good slides is always better than a presentation with no slides or a presentation with bad slides. Right. I think a presentation with no slides is better than a presentation with bad slides. Right. Well, Richard, let's take a break and then we come back to talk this virtual world that we're all faced with right now and how to be effective at presenting virtually. 702 Masterclass. Well, we're back with Richard Melholland. We've been talking about presentation skills, upping them because the stakes are high. If you want to set yourself apart from the rest of the crowd, this is one way to achieve that. Whether you're looking to achieve um, career success or business growth or, in fact, uh, establish yourself as a thought leader, um, this is what you need to do. You'll need to rely on your, your one of the things you need to do, of course, is to sharpen up your presentation skills. And that's what we're focusing on today. So, Richard, we've all have had to adapt, right, to this virtual world. It's a year down the line and we still get to see epic failures on our screens every night with guests appearing Um in the news, for instance, as guests and so on, and they appear in some of the most unflattering ways. Um, what are some of the guidelines there, especially when we have to use video, when we have to appear? Well, the first thing is that, like, if you, we all remember that great story from the, you know, the UK, I think two years ago, when, you know, the person, the kids ran in oh, and everything. Yes. And that made world, world news. That was an epic fail, made that person famous. Now, that wouldn't even get a second look. Mm. And in almost every presentation I do, I am interrupted by a cat. I want to say, but I want to like try and control for it. But actually, my audience is just used to it. And everybody rolls with those punches now. So in fact, what has happened is with this world of presenting at home, it provided it looks like you've made an effort. You're not just showing up with no effort. If bad things happen, everybody's okay with it. Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. My, 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 you know, power just cut or my cat just jumped on my keyboard. Everyone just laughs it off and moves on. We have more permission to be a little bit rough around the edges than we've ever had at any other time as speakers. It's amazing how nice and, you know, how sympathetic audiences are if something mm -hmm. goes wrong for a speaker during a presentation. Mm -hmm. You know, in a, in a normal event, you'd get frustrated. But if something, you know, loses their mic or they're on mute online, everyone just smiles and, and, and laughs about it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, though, that you should make an effort. I, obviously, you should be thinking about your background. Uh, my bugbear is stand up. If you're presenting, oh. get on your feet. Uh -huh. You know, if, if I'm, I'm standing right now. If I'm delivering a presentation, I want to be on my feet because I want my brain to know that I'm working. I want my brain to know that I'm delivering a message. And my audience always notices. Someone will always bring up in the Q&A or answer in the chat, hey, I noticed you're standing. Is uh -huh. that important? You know, and it's also what differentiates your presentation from just another Zoom call. Because, you know, we're so used to that context of having a meeting this way that when somebody stands up and presents, they can use more of their body language. I used to, on a stage, I would normally go from side to side. But now what I do, I move closer to my camera for some points and I move further away and use more of my body for bigger points. Mm -hmm. I can't do that if I'm on a seat. If I'm on a seat, I'm stuck there. So, you know, I remember seeing a, a comedian and he, his opening joke was, I've spent 20 years of my career being... 
a stand-up comedian, and I've spent the last you know six months being a sit-down comedian. And I think, why? Why do that? So, mm-hmm. so set up your environment, get your lighting. Uh, you know, five hundred rand, and you've got a better microphone. A couple of thousand rand, and you've got a better web camera. Mm-hmm. If you want to be taken seriously, you've got to look like you're showing up as a pro, and you're dressing for success. And in this case. Also understand that you're your own technical crew for your own presentations. Yep. So you are both the presenter and the stage manager. Act accordingly. For every bit of work you do before you get on stage, your mindset is, I am not the speaker. I am the uh, stage manager. And then once you get on stage, the stage manager's job is done and you can become the speaker or the presenter. Mm-hmm. And this is true, by the way, if you're doing an internal pitch or you're doing a paid speaking gig. Your mindset should be the same because you always want to show up as a professional or a school event. Mm. And it's harder to maintain the attention of audiences virtually. It's it's not the same because when you're in the same room, there's this energy that you're both able to feed off on from being in person. Have you experienced that as well? The difficulties or have you observed the how attention, in fact, has just diminished? Our abilities has diminished. Yeah, I mean, our whole thing as a company is that uh, we realize that we are got to create presentations for the ADD economy. Uh, that's the world we live in. Mm. And in fact, I used to I used to be of the mindset that a job it, a year ago, my job was how do I hold my audience's attention? That's not my job anymore. If I'm presenting online, my new job is how do I interrupt my audience's distraction? You see, oh. I I have to assume that they've gone onto Twitter. I have to assume that they've gone onto Facebook quickly or check their email or doing something else, jumping to get a quick cup of coffee. And my job is to win them back. And there's several ways you can do that, easy ways. One, understand the role has changed. So actually, I now believe that I have a better experience and feedback from an audience when presenting online than I did when I was presenting in person. Mm. When I present in person, uh, basically the feedback I get from an audience is a visual emoji. I get the laughy face emoji, I get the smiley emoji, I get the sad emoji, I get the thinky emoji, right? Because their face just changes to give me feedback on how they're feeling. Now, my audience has shifted and I've given them permission at the beginning of every talk to do that. My audience has moved from being a passive observer to an active participant. Mm. Because when I open up, I say, guys, I've got the chat open on the side here. Please keep chatting to me throughout. I want to know you're out there. Turn on your cameras. I want to see your faces. And they don't turn on their camera. I say, guys, I'm going to stand here, stare at you awkwardly until I see some smiling faces (laughs) because this is lonely. And I say, and guys, please keep chatting. I saw you chatting in the break. Keep chatting. Tell me, like, if you think something I said is stupid, let me know. Ask me questions in real time. The chat is going the whole time. I'm uh, in- engaging with my audience during my presentation. They're dropping emojis and things like this as well. I can see when they're laughing. And then I use polls to get them interacting. So mm. I know I've lost them. So I say, guys, I just want to pull you back into the room here. Have a look at a little bit of a poll. Just quickly click on these things now and give me your answers. I can see what percentage of my audience have filled out that poll. So I know I've brought them back in. Hmm. And then another small little trick I use, I'm almost embarrassed. It's so stupid. But I use lines and phrases like, guys, this next slide is going to, the quote in this next slide, honestly, it's worth worth, uh, screenshotting. It's something that I believe, if you only remember one thing from this today, I want you to remember the picture you're about to see. (laughs) 
if you were checking your email, you've now jumped back into the Zoom room mm. or the Teams or the wherever you happen to be because now I've created a FOMO. And so I constantly refer to that. I'll refer to my slides. You know, if you have a look at the bottom corner of this, you'll see that small little image. Now that is what I'm talking about. Mm. Or this quote on the screen right now, I don't read it to them. I let them read it. Then you've got to pop back in. So I, I make my audience jump in and out. I assume that I've lost you every two minutes. Every two minutes, you're distracted. And my job is to interrupt that distraction. So you mentioned my last book was called Boredom Slayer. My next book is called um, uh, 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 what? Distraction Hacker. Mm -hmm. Because I want to hack your distraction. Mm -hmm. Mm, that's so useful, Richard. That is so useful. Uh, we're out of time, but I think already we've got a bit of a shake-up. We've had a shake-up on how we can approach our presenting. Uh, all of the best with the next book. When we get into it, maybe uh, it's, it'll give us an opportunity to chat again. Thank you. That'd be lovely. Thanks so much. It's been great fun. Thank you. Um, and Richard and his team, not only do they take care of your presentations, but they also have an academy to help speakers perfect their uh, presentation skills. He's the founder of Missing Link, and he is the official trainer of TED Fellows. He's delivered five TEDx talks and one TED talk, and he's the author of Boredom Slayer. And he's spoken in, uh, what, 30 countries over six continents, and he was our masterclass guest.